The first passage that we're going to look at this evening is the first um, six verses in, in Mark's Gospel. I've entitled it The Homecoming. I'm not very good at giving things titles, but Tim asked me for one, so I had to think of one. It's, uh, it's not my strong point. And, uh, and so we're looking at this occasion when Jesus returned to his hometown. I'll just read again for continuity the, those, the first six verses. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. As we continue in, in Mark's Gospel, we, we carry on and Jesus is still in the area around Galilee in the, in the northern part of the country, sorry, the, the western part of the country, and returns to his hometown, which most probably was Nazareth, which of course is not the town of his birth, which is Bethlehem. And he goes there with his disciples and it, it's, it's worth noting that in this narrative there's no mention of the crowds that we heard about in previous passages. It's possible that there back in his home town he was just Jesus, the carpenter. We also read that he began teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And we don't know how long he was there before but it appears that he wasn't attracting the crowds. So he went to where the people gathered in the synagogue on the Sabbath to teach. Then we, we see that some of the people who heard him were amazed and asked, where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? He raises the question, are they amazed at the things that he was doing? Or are they amazed that it's Jesus who is doing these things? They knew him from a small child. He'd grown up in Nazareth. They knew the family. They probably knew the family history. Whatever the reasons were, they rejected him. In fact, he says they were offended by him. They felt that he had no right to be speaking this way and doing these things. They found it an offence. He wasn't 
well educated. He hadn't been to Jerusalem to get an education. He was the carpenter. Despite the miracles that he performed and the wisdom and the knowledge of his teaching, they couldn't get over the fact that this was Jesus, the carpenter. And so they were offended by it. And this so often can be the case in in things in life and very often we know that when people, if you like, are promoted or in a position uh, within a company or whatever and they're promoted, that those around them don't like it. They take offence at it. The only exception to this seems to be if you want to manage Manchester United. But as soon as they lose a couple, it'll soon change. It's how people tend to react. And in so doing, in reacting this way to Jesus, instead of him having an accolade as the one who came home, as he, if you like, as he come in, back into the town, instead of people flocking to see him and to hear him, they were offended by him. They rejected him. And thus they earned the rebuke from Jesus that a prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and his own home. And then we read that Jesus was amazed. First of all we read that the people were amazed, but now we read that Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. And as a result he could not perform any miracles except healing a few. And that was probably with those who were desperate and needy enough to believe in him. Now, this doesn't mean that God's power is limited or that his grace is dependent upon our level of faith. It is that God has chosen to act only as a response to faith. And faith itself is a gift from him. And we see in this lesson, sorry, we see several lessons from this narrative. Jesus causes offence. And the truth is that the person of Jesus and the message of the cross and the life that is lived for him will often cause offence. We see today that many are offended by Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. And that the preaching of the cross is as Paul reminds the church in Corinth where he says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. They find it offensive. Religious people, or Muslims and other religions, they find it incredible that the Son of God should die. To them, that cannot be. We see that to those religious people and the preaching of the the Christ crucified, it was a stumbling block to the Jews. They couldn't get over it. They couldn't accept it. And the Gentiles, the Greeks, they just mocked and laughed and said, "It's, it's foolishness, it's nonsense. So we see 
that Jesus, the person of Jesus, allowing the message, his death upon the cross is offensive. Offensive to the world. The world does not want to hear. The world does not want to look upon Jesus because he is the Son of God, the one without sin. And so they are offended by it. Or they're offended in the fact that they cannot earn their salvation. It is by grace and by trusting in Jesus Christ. And when we put put Christ first in our lives, the reaction from our nearest and dearest can be like those of Jesus' hometown. Very often because people are challenged by our lives, are challenged by the fact that we're living for the Lord Jesus Christ. They're offended by it. I've had incidents in my family where to confess I've been caught unawares. Because sometimes, how can I put it, people come after you. They know what you believe and they know what you stand for. And they're up for the fight. And we can be caught unawares. Because we're attacked. Because we don't expect it. Somehow we feel that people so often should accept us. And being a Christian is going to make us more acceptable to people. This wasn't the case with the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't the case with the apostles and the disciples. And it will not be the case with us. We do not seek to deliberately cause offence to people. But often, when we stay true to the gospel, it will be unavoidable. When we stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, when we stand for the truth of the gospel, there are those who will find that offensive. That is their state of mind, or rather it's their state of heart. But it is better to be rejected by men than to be rejected by God. The Lord Jesus Christ said that following him there was a cost. And that cost goes on today for many who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Who suffer persecution, ridicule. They can be put out of their families. But the cost is more than worthwhile. Because when we look at eternity and all that we have and all the riches in the Lord Jesus Christ that will be ours, what is the suffering and the scorn of men? What would you rather have? The scorn of men and a crown from Christ? Or would you rather be accepted by men and rejected by Christ? We also learn or can see here how familiarity can breed and does breed contempt. And this is a warning to us because we can become over-familiar with Jesus and therefore we can become over-familiar with the Gospel. You see, these people only saw Jesus the man. They didn't see him as the Son of God. 
They didn't see him as the Messiah. They felt comfortable in the presence of Jesus or pretended perhaps they didn't feel comfortable. Perhaps that's why they were offended. But they felt that the message that he brought was not for them. Oh, they'll hear him again tomorrow. The danger is that you can be sitting here tonight, you may come regularly, you may not, but you can become too familiar or familiar with the gospel. You've heard it all before. You may have been coming here for years since you were a child and you've heard time and time and time again the truths of the gospel that Jesus Christ died upon the cross to bear your sin and calls you to repent and to put your trust in him. And you've heard it so many times that you feel comfortable with it, but you've never responded to it. Or we can become, as Christians, we can become too familiar with the Lord Jesus Christ. We can become too familiar with Jesus the man and forget who he really is. Yes, he's the friend of sinners. And he chooses to call us his friends. And that's a great privilege, one that should humble us, that the Son of God should call us his friends. But he is still the Son of God, who will return in power to judge the nations, the one to whom every knee in heaven and on earth shall bow, So we should be careful how we speak of him. Because our message, we want people to acknowledge who Jesus Christ is, to repent of their sin and come to him as Saviour and Lord. And so we have to be careful with our language. Talking in terms like the man upstairs doesn't project the correct image of the all-holy sovereign God. And we can be giving people a wrong impression of what God is like and who God is by our over-familiar language. Showing or portraying this thought that people have that, as it were, the creator of heaven and earth and the sustainer of all things and the judge of all is somehow like, you know, a cuddly granddad. It's important that we project the correct image of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that the Lord Jesus Christ is not approachable because we can come to him. He calls us to come to him. But we mustn't forget who he is. We want people to know who it is. And we want people to know about their relationship with him. That these are matters that are not trivial, but are serious, and are also for eternity. We are, and they are, in fact, sinners before a holy God. We should not foster this wrong impression of who God is. If we do, we devalue the gospel. Because if Jesus is just a man 
and not the Son of God, then there's nothing particularly special about his death. He was crucified with two other men. The significance of Christ's death is in who the Lord Jesus Christ is. It's amazing that the Son of God should come, live as a man, and die upon the cross. That's the wonder of the Gospel. That's the wonder of the message that we preach. Also, we see that we can miss out of bless- on blessing because of our prejudices. I can't say it, let alone do it. Prejudices. These may be historical, ethnic, or cultural, but they can hinder us, hinder us listening to and responding to the message. The people of Nazareth rejected Jesus the Messiah because they could not get over who Jesus was in their eyes. They couldn't get over Jesus the carpenter, Jesus the man, Jesus the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon and let alone his sisters. And so by rejecting what he had said and rejecting him, And as a result, they missed out on great blessing. We're told that Jesus couldn't do any miracles there. And the wonders that he performed. They missed out on all of that because of this prejudice that they had. And we can also miss out on blessing because of our prejudices. Our cultural prejudices. Our historical prejudices or our ethnic prejudices. You know, I know people who have missed sermons and and blessings because they didn't like the preacher. Not for any theological reason, but for some other reason they just didn't like his manner or his way. Do we put personalities before truth? It can be one way, it can be favouritism, or it can be prejudice. But so often we can put personalities in place of the truth. And also these people refused to accept Jesus. And we read so often of people hardening their hearts to God. And so we should also beware Beware that as God's people, as we meet and we hear preaching, we hear God's word ministered to us week after week, that we do not harden our hearts when we feel the Spirit prompting us and speaking to us. We also see here another important lesson. And that is that signs and wonders of themselves do not cause people to believe. If we look back in the previous chapters that we've been going through over recent weeks, and we look at the various miracles that Jesus had performed, and that these people in Nazareth no doubt knew about, because even in those days, words got around pretty quick. The rising of Jairus' daughter, 
from the dead, the restoring of the demon-possessed man, the healing of the woman who touched his cloak, the healing of the paralytic, and many more. And Jesus did much more than the ones that are recorded. I'll ask you a question. Did he cause them to believe? Even though they were amazed at what Jesus said and did, did he cause them to believe? As we've read through Mark's Gospel, almost as a parallel to what Jesus was doing, we had the accounts of how they rejected him. How the teachers of the law sought to get rid of him. And how the ordinary people also rejected him. So instead of believing, they rejected him. And so, this evening, if we're tempted, as we can be, to think, well, if only God would do this or do that spectacular thing, then people would believe. If that's what we think, we're wrong. Because people will only believe and come to the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit working in their hearts. They can harden their hearts and close their minds to all the wonders that they see that God has performed. As we reminded in Romans that men everywhere are without excuse. People do not come to the Lord Jesus Christ through seeing spectacular signs and wonders. We move on to the the next section where Jesus sends out his disciples. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed with oil many people who were ill and healed them. Jesus continued his ministry in the area, going from village to village in the area around Galilee. But now we're told that he delegated, if you like, some of that responsibility to his disciples. He sent them. They were commissioned by him. They didn't go because they thought it was a good idea. It was a foretaste of what was to come. And they were given the opportunity to have some experience, if you like, to what they had already learnt. They were not sent alone, but in twos for mutual strengthening and encouragement. We are all, from creation after all, social beings needing companionship. And we see that the Apostle Paul rarely travelled alone. And in Genesis 2, in verse 18, we read, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. 
God has created us as social beings. More importantly, as well as being given companionship, they were given authority. And they were given the power over impure spirits and to heal the sick. But they were also given instructions that they should travel light. It was only to be a short trip and they were to take only what they required immediately. Wear sandals, carry a staff, no extra clothes, no money or food. They were to rely totally on God's providence so that they saw not only his power at work but also his providence in supplying what they needed. Those in service for Christ should not be burdened down with material possessions, should not be distracted by material possessions. And that doesn't just mean those whom we employ. That actually means all of us, because we're all engaged in the service of Christ. And Jesus said in Luke that we cannot serve God and money. It's so easy very often for us to find that we're distracted. Remember the parable of the sower a few weeks ago? The people, the the seed was sown and the, the seed was cluttered or choked by the things of this world. It's something that we have to keep a very careful watch on. They were not giving either in their going out that being ministers of the gospel was a lucrative profession. A so-called good number. If you're looking today for a comfortable existence, you'll not find that in the service of Christ. Christ called us to take up our cross and follow him. They also instructed that they should be consistent to go to a place and if made welcome to stay there, not to move from house to house if they perhaps had a better offer. Accept the hospitality they were given. To do so would have been insulting to those who offered hospitality. You know, to be offered, oh, come and stay with us and go there and then somebody down the road has got a bigger house, perhaps with a swimming pool, and to be offered to go there. To do such a thing was insulting. To give hospitality to visitors, even though they were strangers, was the acceptable thing to do in the culture of that time. In fact, to not offer hospitality was considered shameful. They were given instructions on what to do when and if they were rejected. The Jewish custom at that time was when they left, uh, if they were travelling and they went to a, an area that wasn't part of Israel, a, Jew, a Jewish area, went to Samaria or a heathen, any of the heathen lands around them, right, was to, as they left that area, to knock the dust off their sandals. And in the same way, the disciples were to do the same. 
but not because they were leaving a heathen land, but to signify that these people who rejected them were no better than the heathen that those people despised. As judgment upon them, because they were rejecting the ones that God had sent, and therefore rejecting God himself. It was to be a controlled response to the rejection, not to heap curses upon them, not to, you know, threaten to bring fire down upon the people who rejected them, simply to demonstrate the seriousness of what they were doing by rejecting the good news of the coming kingdom. We then read that they went out. And we notice the first thing is mentioned that they did. The reason that they went out was not just to drive out impure spirits or to heal. It is said, it's, if you like, of first importance, they preached repentance in readiness for the kingdom. And they, or they did drive out demons and heal people by anointing them with oil. But their primary task was to call people to repent and be ready for the kingdom. Here we also see a difference that with what they did to what Jesus did. We are not told anywhere that Jesus anointed with oil. But we are instructed in James that this was to be the practice. And this was the practice of those disciples. The oil is only symbolic of healing. It does not in itself contain any special qualities. There is no such thing as holy oil or holy water. But there are also several important points that we get from this passage. One of those that we see in Jesus sending them out two by two is the need we all have for the fellowship of fellow believers. We should always seek the fellowship of other believers wherever possible. We should never think that we are better going it alone. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us, support us, yes, and sometimes rebuke us even if we're foolish enough to think that we can go it alone. We have a responsibility to our, other brother, to our brothers and sisters who need our support and our encouragement. We should be prepared not only to receive encouragement and support, but also to give it. And we should never forget that we have a responsibility towards one another. It's not all about me. It's not all about what I want, what I want to do. We have a responsibility to one another. Also, we see that in our service for Christ, we are not going to be successful necessarily in the world's eyes. It does not guarantee material gain. Also, this passage shows that we should be ready to go without and to deny ourselves as well as to support those involved in ministry. To not do so is to reject them 
but also is to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps the the starkest lesson of all is that there are consequences. There are always consequences to our actions and to our attitudes. If we think that, if you like, there aren't, then we, we fool ourselves. There are always consequences. And this perhaps is the starkest lesson here and in the earlier passage. And that is to reject the consequences of rejecting the gospel. Either by familiarity, apathy, or outright disbelief. For whatever the reason or excuse is, in fact, to reject the gospel is to reject Christ himself. This is something we've seen already throughout the gospel. As people rejected Jesus, the rulers and the ordinary people, despite all he said and did. But that perhaps shouldn't surprise us, because as we read in John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. We see this rejection of Jesus had consequences. In the first section we see how people missed out on tremendous blessing because they rejected him. In the second section we see that those who should have welcomed the message, the ones who were waiting for the Messiah... didn't they rejected him they were no different to the heathens and the Gentiles that they so greatly despised the godless people and the pagans around them and that was demonstrated by the shaking off of the dust those who reject Jesus Christ will be rejected by him it's not a pleasant thought but we are responsible for our actions we are our actions bring about consequences if we keep refusing to listen and harden our hearts we see if you like through the bible how often then God hardens our hearts You see, the message that was taken, this message of the gospel, this message that the disciples took out to repent and prepare for the kingdom of God, this is the message of the gospel. Matthew Henry puts it this way. The doctrine they preached, they preached that men should repent that they should change their minds and reform their lives in consideration of the near approach of the kingdom of the Messiah. Note the great design of gospel preachers and the great tendency of gospel preaching should be 
to bring people to repentance, to a new heart, a new way of life. They did not amuse people with curious speculations, but told them that they must repent of their sins and turn to God. And this is the message of the Gospel. The good news about Jesus is only good news when it's accepted. The good news of the Gospel is only good news when people repent and come to Jesus. Otherwise, they condemn themselves by rejecting the message. This message, again, is the same that Peter preached at Pentecost when the people cried out as they were convicted of their sin. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the same gospel that we preach today. It's the same message that God is calling people everywhere to repent and to turn to him through Jesus Christ. To reject or delay responding to that call that is made by Christ himself is dangerous. It's dangerous because you might never be given another opportunity. We don't know. And you don't know. The writer of the Hebrews says, So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So we echo the call, we make the call to all to repent and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Shall we close our service by standing to sing, Great is the Gospel.